Good evening, and welcome to the Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking weekly show covering legal issues affecting everyday people. We know that there are many things you could be doing with your time, and we appreciate your decision to share this time with us. I'm Irving Joyner. And I'm April Dawson. We're law professors at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and we're your co-hosts. The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by the NCCU School of Law and the Virtual Justice Project. We thank you for joining us this evening. The United States Constitution requires a census of the American population every 10 years. Therefore, and for many reasons, getting an accurate count of the United States population is important every decade. An accurate count of the United States population is used to determine how many congressional representatives a state will have, and the amount of federal funds which might be available to each state for the large number of federally mandated programs. The more people that reside in a state determines how many of the representatives that the state will have in Congress. Census data is also used to draw congressional and state legislative districts. In light of the mobility of the American population, It is critical that the census is regularly taken and that the results present an accurate and possible count for each state. The 2020 census is more complicated now than it has ever been before. Just a couple of weeks ago, the United States Supreme Court heard a challenge to the question whether a person is a citizen in North Carolina or not. The census is designed to count the number of people who reside in the United States and not how many citizens reside in the country. Answering the citizenship questions is a mandate of the Trump administration and is likely to deter people from participating in the census because of fear that the information will be used against them. The Census Bureau has not asked that particular question for the past 70 years. A depressed census count will negatively impact many local communities and states. Tonight we're going to talk with two experts who will educate us about the census and discuss why you should participate in it. Our guests are Stacy Carlis, an attorney, is the executive director of the North Carolina Counts Coalition, and she has been working with the coalition since 2017. And we're also joined by Juliana Cabrales, who is the Mid-Atlantic Director of Civic Engagement for the National Association of Latino Elected Officials Educational Fund. She is also joining us to discuss. (laughs) Nelio is a um, nonprofit, nonpartisan organization that promotes Latino participation in the political process. So thanks to each of you for joining with us uh, this evening. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Okay. Let's uh, let's start off uh, by first of all talking a little bit about your organizations and what it is that uh, your organization do with respect to the uh, to the census. So, uh, Stacy, why don't we start with you, and then we'll go to uh, Juliana. 
Sure, thank you. So um, again, my name is Stacy Carlos, and I am the executive director of the NC Counts Coalition, and we were formed in 2017 specifically for the 2020 census. So we serve as a hub for cross-sector facilitation among government organizations, nonprofit organizations, service organizations, individuals, and community leaders who have an interest in ensuring that North Carolina receives a complete and accurate 2020 census count. Um, a lot of our work is almost as an umbrella organization. So we convene um, a lot of trusted messengers. Our outreach is really to trusted messengers to ensure that they have resources and information uh, to go out into their community and to talk about and advocate for the census so that we have uh, great participation rates. Um, for North Carolina, it's especially important because you know, one, we're supposed to gain an additional congressional seat, which we actually should have gained in the 2010 census had we actually been counted accurately, um, as well as, you know, it's about money. It's all about money and power. So North Carolina receives about $16.29 billion a year in census funding. Um, and if you break that down, that's about $1,600 per person. And then if you look at that over a 10-year period, that's about $16,000 per individual that's counted. Th those are federal funds coming back into our state to support programs such as education, transportation, uh, welfare or social programs, um, housing assistance, lunch programs for children, uh, just a lot of programs that help make our community stronger and better. Um, and then, of course, the information is used for community planning. So because North Carolina is one of the fastest growing states in the country, um, you know, a lot of community leaders, elected officials, they look at this data and they determine where resources need to go. So this is how they decide where schools should be placed or what highways they should be building. Um, so it really, again, benefits uh, every community and every individual. Okay. We Thank you again for having me. Um, so um, I work, as you mentioned, with Naleo Educational Fund, which is a national nonprofit organization. Our main office is out of L.A., but we've been on the ground here in North Carolina doing work since 2012. And as an organization, we work actively with the Latino community to make sure that they're participants in the American political process, to make sure that the community has the resources, information, and support they need to become U.S. citizens. Um, once they're eligible to vote, that they're active and um, go out and vote and have the resources and information they need to be able to cast a ballot. And then the third bucket of work I've really focused on is on census. So making sure that Latinos across North Carolina are aware that the census is coming, have the information they need to participate, and that we're actively working close with community members, partner organizations like the NC Counts Coalition to ensure that communities understand why it's important to get counted. Um, I have a quick question. Um, Stacey, you mentioned that NC Counts came about in, uh, was it 2017? Yes. So in anticipation of the 2020 census. Mm -hmm. So w w why was it that there was a need um, going into the 2020 census uh, where there may not have been previously, or maybe there was a need, but, mm -hmm. but the funds had just not been um, allocated? Can you talk about why it was so pressing um, or why it's so pressing now? Sure. So a lot of it is the preparation that's been done by the federal government ramping up. So federal funding for the 2020 census, you know, we're under two different, obviously two diff very different administrations. And the ramp up period for the 2020 census um, has not been robust enough. There has not been enough federal funding. A lot of programming has been cut. A lot of resources have been cut. They've made a lot of changes. So, you know, 
back in 2010, it was the traditional, you receive a paper form in the mail and you take the census. Now they decided to go digital. However, they didn't provide adequate funding to actually test those digital platforms. Uh, you know, there were three field tests that were supposed to happen, you know, again, working its way up to 2020 census, only one of those field tests actually happened in Rhode Island because, again, they cut the funding. So uh, there was, you know, North Carolina knew, a lot of folks knew, we have a lot at risk, a lot at stake, especially because we did lose that seat that we literally would have, you know, won had we counted every child, you know, or in the military count, for example, that changed in North Carolina, which has been a good thing for us is now military will be counted here in North Carolina. But individuals saw this and they said, you know, the federal government is not providing the resources to really make this um, a successful count. And so some folks said we need to put some funding uh, behind an organization to kind of help fill in some of those gaps. And does every state have an NC Counts organization? No, no. Uh, North Carolina is actually one of the leading states among California, um, maybe like New York. Florida in Florida but we're a very unique organization um, and even the fact that funding happened early on a lot of other states call us and say like hey what are you guys doing how can we replicate some of your work what are some of the resources now one of the uh, things that you talked about was the uh, that North Carolina is one of the fastest growing states in the country in terms of population and uh, clearly that is the case with the uh, Latino uh, population, where there's been a, a huge increase in the uh, numbers and percentages of, uh, of people who have settled in, uh, in, in the state. Uh, and at the same time, both the uh, Latino uh, populations and the uh, African-American population have been uh, resistant uh, to providing information uh, to uh, census takers. Can you kind of discuss, first of all, you know, why has there been this reluctance on the part of these two uh, racial minorities uh, to uh, participate in the uh, census counts? I think specifically when it comes to the Latino population, you know, the census 2020 will take place at a time of heightened fear and mistrust of government um, and its ability to protect private data. So we know that under Title 13 census data is protected, but with the addition of the citizenship question that was referenced earlier in the conversation, folks, the Latino community, and rightfully so, are fearful about what might happen with information that's collected and whether it could potentially be shared with enforcement agencies. You know, the last couple of weeks here in the state, particularly in the Durham, Wake County areas, we've seen an increase in the number of ICE raids, immigration enforcement raids, that are affecting and targeting Latinos um, communities. And so as we see that increase in immigration enforcement, that heightened sense of fear and distrust in government, at the same time, we're out there asking folks, hey, share with us where you live, who lives in your house, whether you're a citizen or not. Um, and so that's all, I think, coming together um, and really making communities hesitate when it comes to participating or trusting government at all. I think Stacy also referenced that for the first time, the Bureau will ask a majority of us to complete our census questionnaire online. So that's another factor that comes into place, right? We know that as news of hackings and 
data not being protected, whether it's through social media outlets or government agencies, uh, just hesitation of go about going online and disclosing this information. So I say those are the two main things we're hearing from the community when it comes to participating. And Juliana, when you talk about this fear of how the government will use this information, uh, it seems to me that what happened to the dreamers uh, certainly plays a role in the hesitancy or, or the trust that um, has been eroded. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so without a doubt, you know, when the Dreamer community, the, who fought really hard for protections for what eventually became the DACA program, an administrative program that was enacted under the Obama administration, when that program was first released and folks were coming out of the shadows, right, making their voices heard and applying for a permit that would allow them to work and stay in this country. Um, we saw that, we heard that from a lot of community members, folks that were, you know, we ha they had this opportunity to, to get a work permit, find some type of temporary relief for their stay in this country, but were hesitant to fill out these applications and disclose very personal information. Because when applying for, for something like a, um, the, the DACA program, you have to disclose not only information about yourself, but if also information about your family. And as Latinos uh, families know, our families are mixed status. So there might be U.S. citizens, there might be undocumented folks, there might be folks that just arrived to this country under a different kinds of visas. And so all of that, I think, um, in any circumstance where folks feel like they have to disclose information that they hold dear to their heart and could be used against them, I think folks are hesitant to do so. Now, Stacey, now that, that the, uh, the fear that's present in the uh, Latino uh, community should not be uh, present in the African-American uh, community. So what accounts for the resistance by African-Americans to, uh, uh, to participate in the census? A lot of it is still distrust of government. So why are they in my business? Why do they want this information? And who is this going back to? Um, and then a lot of it is just not being educated on the return on the investment. So a lot of individuals, when you start telling them, like, hey, this is $1,600 per person, $16,000. This is your neighborhood, right? So you're talking about you want a park, you want a street, you want a school. This is the data that they're going back to when they're looking to determine those services. When you start breaking it down to individuals on that level, I think especially in the black African-American community, we're like, oh, you know, so this is how we get some of these resources back in our communities. And then, you know, taking it even further, right, like ancestry. A lot of folks who I talk to, they're saying, you know, I couldn't find my great-great-great-grandmother or great-great-great-grandfather if I didn't go back and look at the census. So even trying to make that correlation and to educate um, our community on, you know, that personal return on the investment, I think it's just a lack of education. It's not there. Okay. Now, the, um, the process for actually obtaining the uh, information uh, are people required to participate uh, and to give this information to uh, the Census Bureau? By law, they are required to participate. Um, an enumeration of the full population is required. Um, so a, a, a person who is asked to provide information about uh, their family mm -hmm. uh, and who refuses uh, to do so, what are the the penalties uh, for that? So that's an interesting question because in the past we haven't seen an example of folks getting 
penalized or in any way fined for not participating in the census. But as we ramp up to 2020, that's a question that's kind of been top of mind mm-hmm. for groups working on this because, and rightfully so, as, as the citizenship question got added and as we find out more and more about the motivations or reasons as to why that was included, we've had some grassroots leaders, community members tell us, oh, I'm just going to call for a boycott of the census or encourage people to skip a question. And there's real legal questions when it comes. As Stacey mentioned, it's mandated in the Constitution, and therefore we're limited in what we can tell folks what to do, right? Um, And I think, in general, we haven't seen penalties or any kinds of fines to people that don't participate, but we're operating in an an entirely new environment. And these are the types of questions we're asking the Census Bureau to make sure that communities' members are informed of what their rights are and what they can and cannot do. Which raises an interesting point, which is... You know, there are some out there that actually don't want people to respond to the census, mm-hmm. and there is some political motivation for underreporting. Can you talk about that? So that's a really interesting argument. Um, I, I come from a place where I think if we all participate, we only all stand to benefit, right? I think both Irving and Stacy have made a case as to the resources that come to local communities. So an accurate count can only lead to more resources and more representation for your communities. That said, um, as we've seen through the different cases challenging the addition of the citizenship question, we've seen that there's been concerted efforts behind the doors to potentially include the question to exclude specific communities to get counted. Um, The Constitution says we all count as one, regardless of our age, country of origin, whether we're here documented or undocumented. And um, so I would argue there is a conservative effort. I would argue that we all stand to be counted and should be counted and we can all benefit from that. The motivations for leaving folks out of the census, um, I I don't want to speculate, right, as to why folks are leaning in that direction. But um, it's unfortunate because I think we only stand to lose from an inaccurate count. All right. You're listening to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. And we've been talking with Stacy Carlos and Juliana Cabrales about the 2020 census. We're going to take a quick break, but we will be right back. Stay with us. Since 2010, the North Carolina Central University School of Law has been at the forefront of virtual legal education with the launch of its Virtual Justice Project. The Virtual Justice Project is an innovation in legal education and technology. NCCU School of Law pioneered this approach to address the underrepresentation of African-American lawyers and a lack of access to justice for low-income and marginalized communities. Virtual pre-law courses prepare students, wherever they are, for the rigor of law school. The Know Your Rights series offers legal information sessions that empower participants to understand the law and to promote self-advocacy. Both the pre-law courses and the legal information sessions are made possible through telepresence and high-definition video conferencing. Course listings and contact information, along with more detail about the Virtual Justice Project, are on the NCCU Law website at law.nccu.edu.
And we're back. Thank you again for tuning in to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. I'm April Dawson, and my co-host Irving Joyner and I have been talking about the 2020 census with Stacey Carlos and Juliana Cabrales. Um, right before the break, we were talking about, Juliana and I were kind of talking about who might benefit if there is underrepresentation on the uh, on the census. And Stacey, I wanted to get your thoughts, to have you just kind of add in um, why it might be that there are some groups who actually don't see a problem if the Latino community or the African-American community or other communities of color uh, don't respond to the census and are underrepresented in the, the count. Sure. So, again, because the census is all about money and power, uh, first, it's just political representation in North Carolina. Uh, the redistricting process, when we redraw lines following the 2020 data, is coming straight from that data. And so, you know, the argument as to where to draw the lines and where to place political power, a lot of that comes from the census. So if you start counting individuals and there's there's more folks, um, you know, that you're giving uh, some electoral power to, that, you know, could, in fact, you know, encourage other folks to want to suppress individuals from participating. Um, A lot of it is also with resources. So studies have actually found that in some cases, white individuals are counted twice, where, you know, other individuals are not counted at all. And so when they're counted twice, that's twice the resources for their communities. Um, And that's actually, and I put it in quotation marks, justification, right? We go folks the opportunity to raise their hand, say this is where they are. They knew this information was going to be used for distribution of these funds. If we don't see these people, they're invisible. Mm-hmm. So why are we putting a school where people don't exist? Now, are there populations that are legally left out of the count in a particular community? Legally left out of the count? Yes. There are no populations that are legally. Every individual. That's the greatest thing about the census is that it is the largest peacetime operation in the United States where every individual is counted and counted equally. So even a baby born mm-hmm. on April 1st, 2020 is counted. All right. But then for the, for the purpose of uh, determining redistricting, for mm-hmm. instance, uh, and the allocation of, uh, of funds, uh, people who are involuntarily in a particular community mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. would be counted as residents of their home community or of the community in which they are involuntarily uh, detained. And by involuntarily mm-hmm. detained, I mean people who are Prisons, in prison, yes. uh, uh, institutions and yeah. things like that, yeah. uh, colleges. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, so how, how, why aren't they factored into their home community and the advantages mm-hmm. of having an institution like that in your community that mm-hmm. then adds to the count for a particular area. Because at that point, you know, those uh, counties where that house, those, we call it prison gerrymandering. So the counties that house those prisons, they gain to benefit yet again from, you know, those individuals being there and bringing in the dollars, in a sense, into that community, even though those individuals aren't technically reaping any of the benefits of that. 
community. It always reminds me of like three-fifths compromise, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> Deciding when you count folks and how to count folks because it, it makes, you know, your community stronger at that particular reason, though you're giving them no rights and you're, you know, yeah. And in, if I can add in contrast to that, so um, Stacy touched on folks that tend to be overcounted or over, you know, counted twice. College students are actually the opposite of, of the example Stacy State because colleges fall under what's called group quarters, a group quarter count. So colleges and universities actually report back on who's living on college campuses to the census. What tends to happen, though, is that maybe, um, you know, the mother or father or caregiver of the college student counts them as home as well if they don't reside at home. So sometimes they get counted twice because the college is reporting that this person lives and resides in the college and then the parent assumes that they have to report them as well. And so that's part of why some populations tend to be double counted. Folks that have two homes, maybe a someone that lives in the north in the winter and comes down to the spring you know all of that leads to specific communities being counted more and others being designated as hard to count communities which latinos and african-americans the black community fall under right and now, that, w- within within that counting process though there is this uh, the ability or the at least the the practice of the uh, census bureau to add in estimators uh, to the uh, count. How, 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 do, how does that work? So, yeah, so once we all participate in the census, whether, you know, I don't complete a form, someone comes to my door, they're not successful in getting information about me, or whether um, I fill out my census questionnaire and leave a couple of questions blank, the Bureau has to go back, right, and find a way f- to fill in that information. Part of what they'll be doing is using administrative records to fill in those gaps. And then also, you know, in the w- word of math, algorithms and equations to try to figure out what you are, where you live, or who you are. Um, as, as a Latina, that's particularly concerning to our community because we know administrative records aren't always reflective of who we really are, right? And this specifically comes um, into question when you look at the race and ethnicity question on the census questionnaire. So if folks remember back in 2020, there's an ethnicity question that asks folks whether you're Hispanic or Latino or not Hispanic or Latino. For the Latino community, that piece, that's an easy one to answer, right? I'm Hispanic or Latino. When it comes to race, though, which is the second part of that question, it asks whether you see yourselves as white, black, Asian Pacific Islander, several categories and then the final category is other what tends to happen with latinos is that we don't see ourselves as white we don't see you know some don't see themselves as black and a lot of folks end up choosing other what happens with other the bureau actually estimates that other will become the second largest racial category in the united states post the 2020 census Mm -hmm. and what happens is that when i select other the bureau is left trying to figure out who I am, and they're going to decide what race I am because ultimately they need an answer for for statistical purposes. Mm -hmm. Mm. Um, Stacey, you had mentioned that children are treated the same as adults in terms of that number and in terms of the amount of money being allocated to them. Um, Can you talk a little bit about the underrepresentation of children when it comes to the census and which communities are are more affected when children are not counted? Sure. So children is actually the largest 
hard to count community, hard to count population in the census. Uh, we're not quite sure why they are. Uh, research actually shows that some households that return the census form will count adults in the household, but they won't count children. Some of it, again, might just be miseducation, thinking for some reason the child doesn't count. Um, or it just could go completely under the radar. If a household doesn't turn in the form, then just children are left off altogether. Uh, the largest undercount of children is actually from the uh, Latino community in North Carolina. And Naleo Educational Fund and NC Child actually put together a report uh, to talk about some of those discrepancies. Um, Juliana, do you want to talk a little bit more about yeah, so we, we actually worked with a demographer on looking back at 2010 census data and what that undercount of children might have been and estimated that in North Carolina, close to 9,000 Latino children were missed in 2010. As we get closer and closer to that 100,000 people equals a congressional seat, every person counts. And so it's a real concern that not only are Latino children being undercounted, and in, in part, it's crucial to Latino families because we know that they tend to have young children more so than other race and ethnic populations. Um, so that's something that, along with the NC Counts Coalition, we're working closely with to understand, first of all, why folks might leave children off of a form, and two, how we can drive or convince folks that it's important to include everyone in the census questionnaire. And when we're thinking about children being counted, that has a direct impact on the schools that mm -hmm. are created. So if you've got a community and they're not ad adequately um, identifying their children, it could have an impact on the education that they receive. Exactly. Yeah, no doubt. We've, we've had conversations with school board members uh, that talk about how they use census data to project where schools are going to be built, mm -hmm. if schools need to be expanded, how many classrooms, all of that. And we only get one chance at this. Mm -hmm. So imagine if we miss it in 2020, we can't make it up till 2030. Imagine what that impact might be to local schools, planning out school lunches, bus routes, all of these things that impact our day-to-day -day lives. Now, what happens uh, with uh, respect to those people who uh, are homeless uh, without uh, a permanent uh, address and just happen to be floating uh, out there and can't be, uh, in many instances, located by the uh, census takers. So the U.S. Census Bureau will actually send out enumerators uh, early March who will go out and they'll go to places where typically homeless people reside within an area um, based off of data that they receive from the state government and, you know, from, you know, some of the trusted messengers who work with those populations. So they'll go out and they'll try to enumerate those populations. And it's my understanding it happens in the evening. So they try to get them, you know, maybe when they're going to a homeless shelter at night or when they believe that they'll be there. Um, but outside of that, I still think that we have a responsibility um, to continue to work with trusted messengers to do additional work to make sure that those individuals are still counted because, you know, it's not about like your address or what have you. They just need to be counted. So you say trusted messenger. What, what do you mean when you say that? Sure. So a trusted messenger is typically someone in a community uh, that can relate to the community you're trying to reach out to um, and that that community uh, can trust for information and resources. So when you think about like get out the vote, right? Um, if you're going to a, a black neighborhood, it's typically going to be a black individual who goes out and says, hey, this is what it can do for our neighborhood. This is how it could help us. If you go to a Hispanic or Latino community, it's typically going to be a Spanish speaking individual who could speak that language and say, you know, you need to get out and vote because it's much better coming from what we call a trusted messenger versus um, 
an individual, maybe just in government. Uh, because again, it kind of goes back to not trusting government or you know certain individuals. Well, let me, let me kind of get back to that just just a second. Does not the law provide that the information that is provided to the census is confidential? That that information is not to be shared mm-hmm. uh, with other agencies or individuals other than the actual numbers mm-hmm. uh, that are gleaned from the uh, surveys. That's right. So yeah. Title 13 does protect uh, census data as well as it ensures that enumerators have to swear to Title 13 that you know there will be no misuse uh-huh. of the data. So then is the fear somehow that uh, the uh, certain parts of the government like ICE will uh, violate uh, that law and then go in and uh, extrapolate this information from the uh, data that's there, even though there is a uh, supposedly a stone wall mm-hmm. uh, that's created to uh, prevent that. Exactly. I think it's with the current political rhetoric around immigration, anti-immigration, and everything that's been happening, kind of going back to the ICE raids and um, just a lot of the political rhetoric that's around. Even though it is protected by the law, we want to make sure that um, that there continues to not be any misuse or that the law is broken and then calls for litigation to fix it, right? Because at that point, it might be too late because if there is for some reason misuse of the information, even though it is protected by the law where, you know, attorneys will swarm in, if that misuse of the information has been utilized to remove individuals, the process is very quick. And once they're gone, they're gone. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, the, uh, you know we, we talked about the, the fear in the uh, Latino uh, community about uh, providing uh, this information. But there is in uh, African-American uh, communities, in Asian uh, communities, also uh, people who are subjected to mm-hmm. uh, deportation or some ICE mm-hmm. action, even though there's been recently news-wise mm-hmm. a uh, focus on uh, uh, uh Latinos from uh, Mexico, for the most part. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you break through that and get to these individuals and convince them that uh, this is a, a noble and worthy effort uh, that they should uh, now participate uh, in uh, in this uh, in this count uh, that's going on? I think a lot of it is. Our partners, so working with like NC Justice Center, right, who are advocates and who are there to project, uh, protect civil rights and, and the law, um, working with them again to maintain the integrity of the system and of the process and where they have a broad reach to immigrant communities, right, especially one of the things that we've talked with um, like Naleo and El Pueblo and other immigrant organizations, there's a big refugee, like black refugee population in the triad area. So how do we communicate with them and to ensure that all immigrants, um, no matter country of origin, color, what have you, um, 
Asian American, right? A lot of times people forget that as well, but this affected the Asian American population, you know, decades ago. So how do we make sure that they receive the information? Um, so we try to bring all those organizations that work with those individuals and populations day in and day out. They provide them with services. They provide them with resources and information. They're trusted messengers. We make sure that they're at our table to talk through these issues. And then we strategize and we think about all the political ramifications and what do we need to have in place um, as we look towards the census? Who do we need to contact? Who do we need to have our eye on at the Census Bureau? How do we make sure that the integrity of the system is maintained and there is, in fact, no misuse of the data? So that's the angle, I think, that we've taken with it. And I think we're also operating in a unique environment and that now more than ever, we're fighting misinformation, right? What can be misinformation, wrong information through social media outlets, we know how quickly that can spread. And in a way, we're looking as we get closer to the spring of 2020, when we'll actively be getting counted, is ways in which we can rapidly respond to any misinformation out there, um, whether which we expect some of that misinformation may have want to lead to the undercount of folks um, or, you know, might be intentionally be put out there to discourage folks from participating. And, and as Stacey referenced earlier, our partners in the Asian American community are looking at this closely because the census was closely linked to Japanese internment camps, right? And what it meant for those populations years ago. And so I think together, um, the importance of coming together to make sure that our community has the, the right information that it's receiving them from folks that they trust. This is the uh, Legal Eagle Review, and uh, thank you for, for being with us uh, this evening when we're talking about the 2020 uh, census with two uh, experts uh, in uh, this area providing information that you should uh, know about. It. We, we're going to take a break. Uh, right now and we're going to come back and uh, conclude uh, this discussion. So stay with us and we'll be right back. The Center for Child and Family Health was founded in 1996 as a consortium of North Carolina Central University, Duke University, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and the Durham community. Since that time, CCFH has become a national leader in research, training, and the treatment of childhood trauma. The mission of CCFH is to care for children and families affected by abuse, neglect, and other forms of trauma. Its professionals utilize a multidisciplinary measurable approach to provide prevention services, treatment for children and families, professional training, and research related to childhood traumatic stress by uniquely integrating community-based practice and academic excellence. Its vision is that every child has the right to be loved, nurtured, and safe. As a center of excellence, CCFH strives to define the highest standards in the prevention and treatment of childhood trauma. In this way, stability and hope can be restored for children and their families. Information about the Center for Child and Family Health is at 919-419-3474 
or the center's website at www.ccfhnc.org. Okay, we're back on the uh, Legal Legal Review where we're talking about the uh, 2020 census and what it is that uh, you need to be uh, prepared for and kind of things that you can expect uh, to occur uh, during the uh, census taking process, which begins uh, in April of 2020. And it seems like we're a long way from uh, April 2020, but uh, just like the uh, tornadoes and other storms that roll through that this time will uh, go by uh, quickly. So we're honored uh, to have two experts in the uh, studio to talk about this uh, with us. Let me just raise it, and and this may be uh, speculation um, uh, on on your part, but why is it that uh, the Trump administration was pushing for this uh, citizenship question. Uh, The last time that the uh, citizenship question was asked was uh, some 70 uh, years ago. Uh, And for uh, seven decades, uh, this process has served us well. Uh, And uh, so what is it that provides the justification uh, for this administration now to want to change the, uh, uh, the process? Well, they say it's voting rights. (laughs) Um, All of a sudden, they're interested in protecting voting rights. So the claim is, is is that's why the question was added. There's no data or information to actually support um, that claim. And so, you know, really, you know, from advocates, the answer has been this is to do nothing more than to discourage individuals from participating so that one political party can maintain a certain amount of power, as well as, again, kind of building into this anti-immigrant rhetoric um, that has occurred. Yeah, if I can quickly add, I think it's important to note, as Stacey referenced, that the Department of Justice made this request to the Secretary of Commerce, Wilbur Ross, saying that they needed this information for the enforcement of the Voting Rights Act. Um, Advocates that have for years fought for voting rights, right, and actually taken lawsuits have come out to say that they don't need this data to enforce, um, to to better make sure that we have access to voting. So I think that's the first piece. And then the second piece, it's important to highlight that professionals at the Census Bureau, when presented with this option, actually advised against the addition of this question. You know, these are mathematicians, statisticians that have been working towards the 2020 census since before the 2010 census. And so against the advice of the Census Bureau staff, the, the addition of this question proceeded and since then has been struck down by three courts saying that it was added in a violation of federal law. Um, so just the importance of w- those three decisions, right, from the courts that said that it was added by violating federal law um, and how we're really hopeful that that Supreme Court will sustain that decision, right, by those three courts and remove the addition of this question. And so the Supreme Court heard oral arguments on this case um, back in April, actually a few weeks ago. And so we're, we're still waiting to hear their final decision. But the oral arguments um, were not um, 
uh, I was not optimistic, uh, nor were a lot of people who are of the opinion that it should not be added. Um, Stacey, what's going to happen after the Supreme Court rules on this case? Well, first, when do you, if, if you know, w- when do you anticipate that the court will um, answer this question? And then what's the next step for your organization once it does? We anticipate it will be late June, early July, because it's our understanding that census forms have to be printed by like the end of July. So there's like a drop dead deadline in order for the process, the operation to move forward. Uh, once it happens from the NC Counts Coalition, uh, there has been a lot of speculation, uh, you know, as to how it will be decided. We are preparing for both scenarios. Of course, if it's not on there, um, then we just keep moving forward. Hooray. Like, we still have to deal with the fact that it creates a chilling effect, right? So no matter what, people are going to question the integrity of the operation. Folks are going to be hesitant. It's already opened up this Pandora's box where we have to deal with that, the chilling effect of the question. Uh, but we're also looking um, early on and speaking with attorneys who were a part of the lawsuits and looking at how to proceed legally as individuals start asking questions such as, well, what happens if one question is an answer? Or do we have to answer that question? Or can we tell people not to answer that question? You know, so you're not supposed to, you know, of course, tell anyone like not to answer the census or to skip a question or what have you. Um, But of course, you know, legally, there's always certain ways that, you know, you could uh, still provide the information that you need without breaking the law. So we really want to make sure that our trusted messengers have that information so that they remain trusted messengers and that they remain advocates and that our communities are protected. Um, So that's the next step, I think, on our end. Yeah, and I think in addition to that, as I mentioned earlier, the Bureau did not plan for this question to be part of the questionnaire, so they're kind of building the airplane as they fly it. So a lot of it, if the question remains, will just be, getting clarity from the Census Bureau as to how they plan to, you know, make up for what we know will be fear and hesitation among community members, how they plan to um, follow up on folks that maybe leave it blank or don't respond um, to make sure that we have the right information to give to our community so that they're aware of what the impact or, you know, what the process will actually look like. Mm-hmm. Now, you, you indicated that the uh, census will use uh, di- digital technology. Uh, for this uh, census, which is new. Uh, In the past, uh, forms have been mailed to uh, households. There have been uh, enumerators on the ground who will come and ring the uh, bell at uh, your uh, house. If you have a bell, uh, knock on the door and ask you uh, the questions, or you can pick up the forms uh, at the the post office. Uh, How is this going to work? I mean, there are a host of people, at least, I know at least three of them, uh, that, that don't have digital mm-hmm. technology and they uh, don't have the ability to uh, uh, participate in, uh, in, in that manner. Uh, isn't that standing alone a chilling uh, effect on the uh, accuracy or the maximization mm-hmm. of the count? It is. You're exactly right. So um, just to kind of give a brief overview of the operation, around March 23rd, folks will receive an invitation in the mail that says, hey, the census is coming. You can reply either online 
uh, you could ask us to mail you a census form or you could reply on the phone. Mm. So there are still three options, but again, it kind of goes into that education piece versus just receiving a form in the mail, filling it out, and then sending it back. Um, a lot of the concern, especially in our rural communities in North Carolina, is the digital divide. So exactly what you're saying, I think, and don't quote me on this number, I think it's 34% of North Carolinians don't have access to broadband internet or high-speed internet. So we want to make sure that those communities um, are not missed and that, you know, if they're not taking it online, that they receive a traditional form or that we make sure that our libraries are equipped with portals for them to take the census um, or one of the things we're looking at is maybe even going into places where folks normally go, like banks or shopping centers, and providing resources, computer portals, portals where they could take the census and encourage them to take it there. But that is a really huge concern. Um, it's just, you know, we take it for granted. I think everybody has a cell phone and you can just access the internet wherever you are, but that's not in case, you know, true. So we want to make sure that nobody misses out on the opportunity to take it. You know, the other issue, of course, uh, aside from the, the digital divide that there may not be people who have access to the Internet or, or technologies, is, of course, uh, foreign countries kind of hacking mm -hmm. the data. Right. And so when we talked about the mistrust of the government, mm -hmm. it's not just mistrust of, of our own government, but also uh, foreign governments. Um, Juliana, what are, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, without a doubt. And we've, we, it hasn't come up in our conversation today, but um, keeping in mind that all of this will be happening as we have primary elections in a presidential election year, right? So we're scheduled to vote in North Carolina early March. And so the rhetoric and any attempts to undermine elections, hack our election systems, you know, it's been an, an issue that's been discussed the last couple of years would have an effect on participation rates. Um, interestingly enough, um, Stacey referenced earlier that the Census Bureau conducted what is called an end-to-end -end test in Providence County in Rhode Island. And post the test, we did an assessment of Latinos in that area to try to get a sense as to how they found out about the test, how they participated. And what we found is that most folks, even those that had access to the internet, preferred to participate in paper or in person. So regardless of access is a big question here, but in a way we're also preparing ourselves to make sure that folks understand what the options are and that ultimately some of us might feel safer filling out a traditional paper questionnaire, mailing that back for exactly the concerns you've expressed. Isn't it uh, uh, safer for a family to uh, respond digitally rather than in person? Because you, you, you're away from those uh, follow-up questions that an enumerator uh, might have and also the enumerator's ability to observe the, uh, the environment uh, that, uh, that, that they're in. So if there is, for instance, uh, an undercount of the number of people who are in the household, you know, the enumerator would be more likely to pick that up while something like that would not get picked up if you were talking about uh, uh, answering it uh, digitally. Well, I think that's some of the questions that we still have for the Census Bureau. We haven't, you know, gone through the questionnaire online, um, how it allows you, whether it's some responses are required or if it actually allows you to skip responses. You know, many times, as you know, when you go to firm fill out a uh, questionnaire online, they'll have that little star that will prevent will prevent you from moving forward. So I think that's part of the piece. We're still waiting a lot of those moving parts. And then also what we hear from our community more and more is that they'll, they'd rather do it online. They'd rather do it in paper than having someone come knock on their door, tying it back to that 
um, atmosphere atmosphere of fear that's prevalent in our communities. So I think all of those are things that we'll have to keep in mind as we plan out what we'll do next year mm-hmm. to encourage folks to participate. Yeah. So, Juliana, what have you seen in terms of efforts that your organization has been making? Have you been getting traction? And what do you anticipate for the for the rest of the year in terms of your um, education effort? Right. So at Nalo Educational Fund, we launched on April 1st of this year our Agase Contar campaign, which in, in English means make yourself count. And it's a campaign that we're deploying across the nation in partnership with Latino organizations, Spanish language media outlets, which we know in the United States have a deep reach. And the idea behind that campaign is to start, first of all, creating awareness about the census. It's a little early to activate community members, right? It's a little early to let them know, hey, it's time to get counted. We'll leave that for early next year. But through that campaign, we're doing a lot of the work Stacy referenced. So training our trusted messengers, making sure that Grasstops leaders are up to speed on everything that's happening in the census so that they're ready to go when the time comes. And so if someone is um, listening to this show and they're interested in getting involved, uh, what, what, are, what opportunities are available for someone who wants to volunteer or even maybe be employed? Because my, my guess is that there will be jobs that are opening up for people who yeah. will you know, do some of the counting. Stacy. Yeah, so that's a great point is that there are census jobs. If you go to, uh, I think it's 2020census.gov. Um, they have jobs and they're hiring right now in Raleigh. I know they're hiring in Charlotte for field jobs. Uh, I can't remember. I think the starting pay is like 13, somewhere between 13 and $15 an hour. Um, they're good part-time jobs for college students uh, as well as for some of their office jobs and partnership specialists. So, and the it goes from 13 and I think it goes all the way up to like $28 an hour. So it's a, it's a range of different positions. Um, and if you want to volunteer, join the coalition. Uh, if you visit our website, nccensus.org, uh, there's a form that says join the coalition. It will come to our organization. If it's an individual, most likely what we'll do is we'll try to put you in contact with your local complete count committee. Complete count committees are formed by government organizations. In North Carolina, it's typically a county organization who pulls together a group of community leaders representative of the community to ensure that everyone is counted. Uh, So for example, Wake County launched their complete count committee last month. And they'll have a lot of nonprofit organizations as well as individuals um, who want to ensure that Wake County is counted. Uh, so if you contact us, we'll put you, you know, in contact with a complete count committee. And then also, if you happen to be a nonprofit organization, we have a task force. We meet once a month and we talk about all things census related and how we are going to mobilize to maximize participation. So all of the legal issues, uh, all of the legal questions, all of the questions in regards to how to do this in the field, um, how can we make sure our communities are counted, we talk about those things every single month. And for the census jobs, for uh, you said they're accepting applications now. Is this for work to be done now or work that will be done in uh, next year? Some of it is for work that to be done now. So they have a plan to launch field offices. And Charlotte, I think, already opened their office. Raleigh is getting ready to open their office. So, you know, it has to be somewhere within a triangle area. They're starting to staff up those offices. And I think North Carolina is supposed to have seven offices total, if I'm correct. Um, so they'll slowly start bringing on full-time staff for those positions. They'll really start, they're doing address canvassing as well. So, and I think the address canvassing starts third quarter of this year. So they're hiring now 
for address canvassers. And then the training for enumerators, the folks who go on and knock on the doors if you don't respond, that will start at the end of the year. And then those folks will launch, I believe, uh, end of April, early May uh, to start doing the non-response follow-up. Now, you talked about uh, trusted messengers. I believe that was the term that, that, that you used. Can you just kind of uh, explain what the trusted messenger is and then how can an individual become a uh, trusted uh, messenger or is that someone that you choose uh, to be uh, a trusted uh, messenger? Um, I think a trusted messenger is anyone who's looking to empower their community and, uh, and who is connected to that community. So it could be someone who maybe has done voter registration, right? Because um, this is exactly like get out the vote. The only difference is for voting, you have to be a citizen. For census, it's for everyone. So uh, any individual who's interested in empowering their community and providing them with resources and making sure that they have the political representation that is fair uh, for their community can be considered a trusted messenger. Uh, they just need to speak with us so that they can receive the training and they, you know, we make sure that we have they have the accurate information. Um, as they go out and as they speak with individuals uh, to make sure that they're providing those individuals with right information. Mm-hmm. And just so just so we're clear that when we talk about the enumerators and the trusted messengers, sometimes they're one and the same, but not necessarily. Um, Juliana, what um, what's the difference between the two and, and how does your organization utilize? Them? Yeah, so enumerators will be formally hired by the Census Bureau, right, to go out and knock on doors. I think Stacy, the NC Counts Coalition and Partners are doing a real effort because we want those trusted messengers to be the ones applying for these jobs, right? We know that there's no one better to go out to our communities and count us than those that live in our communities. Uh, you know, there's specific challenges in the hiring process. It's only available to U.S. citizens, which tends to exclude a lot of folks in the Latino community. But what we found through our research, and this is not surprising because it's very similar in the voter engagement space, is that trusted messengers in the Latino community are oftentimes family members, right? So folks that are listening to us, think about those around you and how can you get those family members, those around you, to, to participate in the census. And I think anyone that speaks for schools or for children, doctors, nurses, healthcare providers, childcare providers, all of those are folks that can actively engage, serve as a trusted messenger. And I mean, if they have a little bit of time, why not apply to be an enumerator too? Exactly. All right. Well, we are out of time, but this has been a great discussion. We'd like to thank our guests, Stacy Carlos. She is the executive director of the North Carolina Counts Coalition and Juliana Cabrales, who is the Mid-Atlantic Director of Civic Engagement for the National Association of Latino Elected Official Education Fund. Um, And we'd like to thank you as well, as always, our listening audience for spending your Sunday evening with us. We hope you've enjoyed the show and that you've learned something and that as a result of this show, you'll take some action, uh, even if it's just educating the folks around you about this upcoming 2020 census. Uh, We're going to have to have another show uh, because this is an incredibly important topic and uh, we still have time before April 1, 2020, when the official census counting starts. So don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you have any questions and you'd like to send us an email, you can reach us at LegalEagleReview at nccu.edu. Until next week, stay informed and engaged.